Hey, grab your Bibles if you have it there with you and turn to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. And uh, um, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before that, I spoke on this very same passage as I was going to speak at the youth camp last weekend. And, uh, you know, there's, um, there's so much here that we need to pay attention to that I thought it would be worthwhile for us to come back and, and spend this morning looking at that passage yet again, and especially taking note of the second half of this passage. So turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verse 12 to 17, but we're especially paying attention to verse 14 onwards this morning. And as we approach God's word, it's right that we ask him for help. So let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you for this opportunity now to come under your word. And yet, Lord, we confess to you that we might have the biggest intellect in the whole world and we might have all the ability in the world to speak or to study. In the end, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to open our hearts to receive your word. So we pray now this morning, Lord, that you would be with every single one of us and that your spirit would be opening our ears and eyes to behold your truth, that through your word we may come closer to you. Give us this mercy and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read from verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Just a little section there from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church there at Corinth. And he's describing to them something that happened to him when he was in the city of Troas. He was so deeply discouraged that he couldn't carry out the mission that God has given him to preach the gospel. Even though the door was open, he had to take leave. What a discouragement that is. And then in verse 14, he turns to, you know, the gospel, he turns to God to find any encouragement for himself. And of course, giving us a pattern to follow. But as we begin thinking about this passage this morning, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you think about uh, just everything, anything in life, you have to really have the proper understanding as you come to something. Otherwise, if you have the wrong understanding from the very beginning, you might be a million miles off before you realize. And I'll give you some examples. You know, imagine if somebody got married together. And they say to you, maybe you're a friend, and they say, look, I got married to this girl because she's so rich. Oh, I can't wait to get half of that. I can't wait to get my hands on some of the money. You might say, you know, brother, your understanding of marriage is really wrong. And it's going to end up in, in really a, a terrible marriage that's not what it should be, right? Or if somebody says to you, you know, I've got this great vacuum cleaner, and it has a big sign, you know, not for wet vacuuming. You know, you can get special dry or wet vacuums. This is not one of them. But they say to you, I can't wait to vacuum up the soup I spilled on the floor. You might say, don't do that because not only is it going to make a mess anyway, but your whole vacuum is going to be ruined. And if you guys have ever had to apply for warranty, which I'm sure every business and company makes super difficult for a reason, and you say to them, I tried to vacuum soon, they will say to you, our instruction said that it's not for wet vacuuming. And therefore, you're not going to get a cent from us. They won't say it like that. They'll say it very politely. But we understand, don't we, with appliances, you have to understand properly how it's to be used. And if you don't use it properly, then the warranty is voided. And, you know, when you think about those matters in everyday life, it's pretty important. 
But when you come to this whole topic of, of God and how do we approach him? How are we to understand, you know, what his purposes are towards us? It's really important we answer those questions rightly from the very beginning. Because it's very possible and sadly a reality that for many people as they come to think about this whole topic of God and of spirituality, of religion, of Christianity, of Christ, they might have very well wrong assumptions and never have had those corrected. And then 10 years down the track, they've realized that everything has been built on sand and not on solid foundations. For example, I can give you examples of this. You know, people might come to God and assume that God's great purpose for them is to make them happy and comfortable. Well, then, of course, when they face difficulties in their life, suddenly their whole assumption falls apart because it wasn't based on reality. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God's purpose for you is to make you as comfortable as possible and as happy as you possibly can be in an earthly sense. But you see, if people start with the wrong assumptions, then they end up in terrible places down the track. Uh, or how about, you know, if people come to this whole topic of God and they assume that God, we've just been seeing he's a good and gracious God, but really maybe the way they've been brought up or the messages they've been hearing, their conception of God is really as a slave master. You better live up to my standards or you're going to get the whip. Surely we can all imagine that is going to set the whole course of life down the wrong direction. What a horrible way to live. And thinking of God merely as a slave master that we have to please, even though we might hate him if we're really being honest, because we have to live up to this tyrant. But sadly, that is how many people conceive of God, because from the very beginning, their understanding of God has been, has been wrong. And so it's important we ask this question, the question that we so often don't ask. You know, what does God say to us about himself? What does he express to us about his whole purpose on this earth? What is he doing amongst us? What does he want to do with us? We have to answer those questions. And here in this passage, we've got two great answers to that question. And we need to get our minds clear on these things. Now you look there, verse 12 and 13, Paul is saying to you, honestly, as a man, he's failed as an apostle. His whole job from God is to preach the gospel everywhere. And yet here in Troas, even though a door was open for him in the gospel, he bailed out because he was discouraged that he couldn't find his brother Titus there. That's an admission of failure. Now, where does Paul turn? In thinking about God, if he had an understanding of God as one who punishes those who don't live up to his standards, we might expect despair. We might expect this cringing on and fear of punishment. But you read there in verse 14 what he says, but thanks be to God, there's rejoicing, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads a fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Right there, Paul is saying, you know, what are we to understand about God and his purposes towards us? God, in looking upon human beings, he is not demanding of human beings to have the victory over the things in their lives, such as sin, such as their failures, such as their inability to please God. God is not looking down saying, well, human beings, you better pull up your bootstraps and do something about your own mess. We can see that's clearly not the case because Paul says, thanks be to God who leads us in triumphal procession. So the victory belongs to who? To God. God is the one who has obtained the victory. He has conquered and given triumph. And what he does is he simply invites us to share in his victory. And of course, if you read the Bible very clearly, you know, what is that victory primarily over? It's over your greatest need. And it's namely the idea of sin 
Sin being everything that keeps us away from God, us not meeting God's perfect standards. And God doesn't grade on a curve. That would be to deny his own character. He needs perfection, but we can't meet him. And there is what the Bible defines as sin, doing what's wrong and not doing enough what's good. And that's true of every one of us. And so God, in his triumph, he triumphs over that greatest need which separates us from him. And he does that in Christ. Now, all of this, I have to say, is merely by way of introduction because I'm interested in the second half of this passage. But it's something that we can't just simply pass on over. The very fundamental assertion of the Christian message is that every single human being is in a deep, deep mess. They are not right with God by their own efforts, by their own achievements, by who they are. That's the reality that all of us are in. If you don't believe me, I would simply ask you, have a look at your own conscience and ask your conscience, have I been perfect today? And your conscience will tell you the reality. That's the reality that every single one of us as human beings are in. And the Bible says the fundamental message is that the answer is not within yourself. The answer is not within another human being. The answer certainly is not within the church per se. The answer comes from God. He alone can give victory. He alone has obtained the triumph. And all of that victory is there in Christ. And so Paul can say, thanks be to God. You might say, how bold of you, Paul. You just failed. And here you are thanking God. How dare you? Well, because he knows that the victory does not depend on his, him and his own performance, but upon God having the triumph. Have you understood that point? Are you looking to yourself or your own effort to make sure that you're right with God, that you can celebrate and rejoice and live life without thinking, what am I going to do when I meet God and he holds me to account for all the wrong I've done? Are you looking to God for that victory over that sin that you have? And the Bible says that's the fundamental message, that God gives us the victory. But now we're looking at that second part of verse 14. Not only this, but through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So in answering that question, what is God doing in this world? What does he want to do with us? Number one is he wants to save us. He wants to have victory and bring us into that victory so that we could be with him, having all of our sins forgiven, being adopted as God's children. That's one major part of it. God is giving us victory, the victory we couldn't have for ourselves. But what's the second part? And it says here that he is intending to use his people to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, you can imagine in your mind that wonderful illustration of the idea of fragrance. Now, this might seem strange. I think it's worth saying because, you know, as people say, the stranger something is, the more shocking it is, the more you remember it. So I hope this will help you remember it. Has anybody ever asked you in your life, um, are your earwax normally dry and flaky or waxy and oily? You might seem a very strange question. I thought it too when I was asked. But, you know, somebody said that somebody did studies and they say that basically, you know, if your earwax is usually oily and, and wet and clumped together, generally that means you perspire more and so you have more noticeable body odor. But if your earwax is more flaky and dry, then it means you perspire less and generally there would be less body odor after exercise, whatever it is. I can see by your faces, it's very entertaining from here. <laughs> you know, it's a very shocking thing for you, isn't it? As you're thinking about, you know, this illustration, I, I'm sure you'll remember it. But you can understand this idea of fragrance, odor. Here's the thing. When there's a fragrance, it's unmistakable. When somebody has a body odor next to you, you might wish that you couldn't have a nose to notice it, but you can't help but notice it. 
it makes its way into your consciousness without your permission. Unfortunately, that is the reality of fragrance and odor, isn't it? It's meant to be spread. Now, I'm sure you'll remember this. The way that this is used here with the knowledge of God, it says here, the fragrance of the knowledge of God. What is that telling us? That God's great purpose with his people is to so spread the knowledge of who he is in this world that everybody knows it. It's unmistakable. We might phrase it again with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, dear friends, if you're ever interested in how God works through history, you can look down. We have this vantage point. 2,000 years later, here in New Zealand, we are at the ends of the earth. We, we often left off world maps. We're at the ends of the earth. And God has done exactly what he has always promised to do from 2,000 years ago, that his witness spreads to the ends of the world. And it is still spreading today. But you see God's grand purpose there is to have his people so spread the knowledge of who he is, the knowledge of what he has done, the knowledge of the victory in Christ, that it's unmistakable everywhere they go, like fragrance, it spreads and it comes into the minds of others around them. Now, I want you to understand this. If that is God's grand purpose with his people, I want you to see how truly and utterly gracious he really must be. If that's what he is intending to do, how wonderful he must be. Now, why do we say that? Why am I saying that to you? If you guys have young kids or if you guys you know, know something of the internet these days, you might know that there are some people, especially young people, who claim that their job is to be a social media influencer. You might know that there are people who think their entire job is to be an influencer of culture. You know, they kind of walk into the room and say, the greatest gift that God can give you is me in my presence. You know, they're kind of saying my thoughts and my opinions are so worthwhile that I'm influencing the whole of culture. And I've got 200,000 followers and they all like my posts on Facebook and things like that. I'm an influencer. You might have heard of those kind of people, but you can understand that type, can't you? The people who, who come into your birthdays and they don't bring a gift. They say, my presence is your gift. You know, those people who think so highly of themselves. Well, that's really kind of what God is saying. He's saying that the greatest gift, the greatest blessing that anybody can have is to have the knowledge of him. Now, here's the thing. When a human being says that, we might turn up our noses and smirk at a person like that. You know, sadly, there are people who genuinely believe that they are the greatest gift that anybody can have, their own presence. They're so wonderful that if you had them as a friend, you wouldn't need anything else. But I hope you realize the reality is any human being, no matter how grand they may be, Queen Elizabeth or the President of the United States, whoever they may be, in the end, we have to scoff a little bit at that idea, don't we? The unfitted pride that a person must have to think that way of themselves. It's laughable if it wasn't so sad that people believe it. But that's exactly what God is saying of himself, isn't it? That his grand purpose is to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of himself everywhere, everywhere, even here in New Zealand. Now, the thing is, what's the difference? Well, let me give you another analogy. Imagine if you were out in public and suddenly, let's say you were with a friend or with a family member, your family member suddenly started seizing up and having a seizure and falling to the ground. You think it's a heart attack. You're crying out into the crowds and suddenly somebody steps through and makes their own presence known. They say, 
I am an emergency paramedic responder. And I just so happen to be on my day off. Let me have a look. What would you do? Would you tell them, get out of here. Who do you think you are? You know, you think you're so great or something. You would say, thank goodness you're here. I'm so glad you made your presence known because I need to have you in this certain situation. Now, here's the rub. No human being is so grand and so wonderful that everybody needs to know them. But that's not who God is. The reality is God is so wonderful and so grand that to know him is the greatest blessing any human being can have, full stop. In fact, the Bible says, to know God is what we were created for in the first place. And to not know him, to not be right with him, to not be in a right standing and relationship to him. The Bible says, you know what that is? It's hell. It's death for all eternity. If you ever wondered what death is, we get so often caught up with these imageries of fire and of darkness. But you know, those are all metaphors. Those are all similes. Those are all just ways of speech. But if those are the ways of speaking, how terrible the reality must be. Fire that does not stop. Now, why is it described in such ways? Do you know what the Bible tells us hell is? It simply is continued separation from God, the source of all life. That's what it is. And those who continue to say to God, even though they might have the opportunity to know him, I don't want you. I don't want you and I don't need you and I don't want to have anything to do with you. What God simply says is, if that's the way your heart wants to continue on for the rest of your life, then that's what I will give to you. I will give to you what you ask for, which is separation from me. And since God is the source and author of life, if you are separated from him, the only thing that is left is death for all eternity. And the Bible has no way to really describe the agony of such a reality. And therefore it has to point to human illustrations of fire and darkness, gnashing of teeth and crying out of pain. Because to be away from God, the source of life is nothing but death. But you can see the tragedy of hell, aren't you? That it's something that people choose to be in because they will not have God. And so we come to this uh, purpose here. If God is saying that his grand purpose is to have everyone on this earth come to the knowledge of him, how truly gracious he must be. Because he certainly knows that our greatest need and our greatest good is to know him as he truly is. To be kind of delivered and to be made free from maybe wrong ideas of who he is. To be broken free from the ignorance of who God is. To realize that our lives here have a grand purpose of, of being connected with God, the great, the great and almighty one. Now, if that is God's purpose for his people, how truly gracious he must be. Have you realized that that is really the grand joy of the gospel, of what God does for us? You know, think about this. You know, when people tell you something, they say, uh, this happened. But not only that, this happened. But not only that, this happened. But not only that, this happened. Look how great my day is. People usually start with the lesser and they build it up, don't they? They get a climax to you. You know, they're kind of saying, this is good. Wow, that's pretty cool. But not only that, I found a $100 bill on the, on the, on the sidewalk. That's good. But not only that, I had a lot of ticket that, that struck big. That's good. And not only that, and my girlfriend accepted my proposal. Wow, that's good. You're kind of building things up, aren't you? Now, here's the thing. When we come to the scriptures and we read of what God offers to us in the good news of Jesus Christ, he is not only offering to you forgiveness of all of your sins. That's good. And that is not all. That's only 
secondary. He's not only offering to you adoption to be his children. That's good, but that's secondary. He's not only offering to you a right and perfect standing with him. All of those blessings of the good news of God, I'm going to be bold and say they are secondary. Now, how can I say those things? Because the primary and greatest wonderful blessing of the gospel is that God offers himself to you. He says, you get to know me. You get to have me as your father, Christ, my son, as your brother. That is the great promise of the good news. God is the gospel. And in knowing God and knowing Christ, all of these secondary perks, such as the forgiveness of sin and right standing with God, all of those things come naturally. They are inseparable. So, of course, I'm not saying that you could have God and also not be forgiven. No, no, no. Those are all part and parcel of receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to see that the great love of God is expressed in him, not only giving us blessings separated from himself, but that he is giving us himself. And in him, there is all of those wonderful spiritual blessings. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, that is the graciousness and the love of God to this world, that he is intent on using his people to spread the knowledge of himself like a fragrance so that all might have this blessing that their soul so desperately needs to know God, their creator. You know, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 2, one of the old prophets in the Old Testament, God in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2 says to all of Israel, and he kind of says it in a poetic way, very, very dramatic way to emphasize the importance. Jeremiah prophesies and says, I call heaven and earth to witness against my people Israel, for they have committed two evils against me. There's God speaking. They have departed from me and forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they have gone and made cisterns for themselves, little mud cups and mud containers to try and hold water. But they are cisterns that are faulty and they leak. And God says, that is the great problem of his people of old now if you read the old testament i was talking with somebody last night the old testament is really r18 there's a lot of horrible things that happen in there just detailing for us the reality of what sin looks like in this world murder and betrayal and all kinds of horrible things and yet god points to where does all of that come from because people have forsaken me and because they do not know me you can see how the earth is filled with all manner of wickedness, all manner of evil. But you see, that's what happens when we as human beings, we forsake God. What a wonderful imagery to help us to realize what we're doing. Here we are dying of thirst as human beings. I hope you realize you need water. Your body screams at you that you need water when you're dehydrated. And God says, here I am, the fountain of living waters, always bubbling, always more than enough. And here we are saying, no, thank you. I want to scoop up my own mud and filth and try and form a little cup to hold some water. And the tragedy of all of that is that all of those little containers we make for ourselves, there's holes in them. The mud dissolves and the water spills out. It's, it's filthy and dirt-ridden water. And he says, for all those who turn away from God and they look to other things, that's what they're doing. They turn away from the fountain of the living waters. You know, I have to ask you this question. Is that what you're doing in your life? 
You're looking to so many things to give to you the joy and the happiness you so desperately crave, the significance and the purpose and the satisfaction of your soul, but you are not looking for it from God who gives to you all of these things freely as a gift. No, rather, you look to how much you make to justify your worth and your existence. You look to your relationships in your life, the family members who so value you. You look to your wife who, who loves you and who says good things to you. Those are the things you look to. Or you looked at your moral performance and think, if only I keep on being good, then only can I be happy and rejoice and be secure. Anything that you look to apart from God and his acceptance of you in Jesus Christ is a little mud pool and it will not give you life. And in the end, when you face the great storm of death, it will fail you. There's no doubt about it. But if you are safe and secure in Jesus, you have the victory of God in Christ and you are right with him, then you can face even death with a song, even death with rejoicing, because you know God has his hold on you. Are you drinking from the fountain of living waters? But look, all that to come back to the fact that this is God's grand purpose for his people, to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere they are. Now, just very quickly as we conclude, as we look through the rest of this passage, how is God intending to spread the fragrance of himself? Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. That's what Paul says. Everybody who truly knows God is in that right relationship with God. He doesn't say they have to work hard to be the aroma of Christ. They better come to three Bible studies a week in order to become the aroma of Christ after five years. He says we are the aroma of Christ. By virtue of being in a right standing with God and receiving the victory of God in Christ, receiving God, we are the aroma of Christ. Well, what is he talking about here? Well, again, very simple analogy. And we'll go back to that body odor analogy, if you don't mind. You know, if you spend time with somebody who has really strong perfume, what happens is after you leave, you also smell the same. You know, you guys all know that, don't you? Sometimes when I, you know, have my kids back from my parents' house, they smell like my parents. And sometimes that's just not as nice as them smelling like my own house. You know, but the reality is when we spend time with somebody, their smell, their aroma, their, their fragrance rubs off on us. Now, what Paul is saying is that if you are truly right with Christ and with God, of course, you will be the aroma of Christ because you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the aroma of Christ in this world. You are the aroma of Christ to God. Or otherwise, you know, we might use the words that Jesus uses. You are my witnesses. Witnesses are those who have seen for themselves and are simply saying authentically and honestly, this is what I have experienced. Witnesses are not those who come up with a nice sounding story. Those who do are, are, are convicted of fraud, are convicted of, of, of a crime because it's forgery, it's fraudulent. But witnesses are those who simply speak of the reality that they have witnessed. And Christ says all of his disciples are his witnesses. They know him. And so the way God spreads the knowledge of himself so many wrong teachings on this point. So many people preaching at Christians saying, you must be so-and-so in your structured evangelism. That word being such a burden to the church so often, you have to follow five-step programs. This is the way that you must do it. And if you're not giving your time, you know, a Saturday every week, you're not doing it properly. 
all these different ways. No, no, that's not at all what we read here in the scriptures. How are the church of God, how is the church of God meant to be, you know, spreading the fragrance of God by themselves being the aroma of Christ in their lives? By themselves being close to Christ in their own heart, in their own lives, they will just naturally radiate off the aroma of Jesus Christ to those in their lives. And if you are truly consistently on a daily continual basis, walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are being made more and more like him. If you realize, dear Christian, that's the greatest act of love you can do for those in your life to be more like Jesus. I hope you realize this. I hope dear husbands, you realize your wife would be so much happier if they were married to Jesus. And I hope you realize Dear children, you think about it. I'd be so much happier if my parents were perfectly like Jesus Christ. It's true. <laughs> and, and parents would be happier if their kids were like Jesus too. But here's the reality. The closer you look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater blessing you are to those in your, in your relationships, in your life. And not only so, Paul goes on to say, if we truly are close to the Lord Jesus, if we truly are walking with him, united with him, that is an ongoing reality in our lives as believers. He goes on to say in verse 17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He says, we will be people of sincerity. You know what people of sincerity are, right? They simply speak honestly about what's in their heart. They're not there to put up a pretense about Christianity and how wonderful Jesus is when deep down in their own hearts, they don't know the reality of that. But they know they have to do it because that's what a Christian does. And so they just fluff it up and pretend. That's not at all what true Christianity is. That's not sincerity. That's not integrity. But you see, what Paul is saying is that if you really are one with Christ, you know him, you walk with him, he is dear to you and precious to you as he ought to be. Then naturally, if you are truly sincere, that will just come out of you. You just come out of you. What people delight in, they love to talk about. You can mark this. You know, so often your coworker or your friends or your family member will start rambling to you about the rugby, start rambling to you about their fishing trip on Saturday. And you kind of have to say, when did I ask you? Well, because people love to talk about what they delight in. Oh, dear church, do you love to talk about Jesus? Is your heart truly so caught up in how wonderful he is to you? How he continues to walk with you day by day? How he is a friend who is so close to you, he's closer than a brother. He's so real and sweet to you. That when you speak to others about him, it just comes out. You just can't wait to talk about him. That is the way that God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Look at that. Paul says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. You know what peddlers do? You know what business people do? They know that the one rule of a successful business is to make money. And peddlers, they will sell you something if there's a profit to be made. And they will withhold a stock and get rid of it if that stock no longer retains any profit-making ability. Now, here's the thing, Paul says, even in his day, so many people, God's word to them is only something to be shared if it is of profit to them. And of course, if God's word brings a cost, it's time to do away with that. Well, again, I must ask you, dear church, 
Is that the way that Christianity is to you? Where there is benefit to drum up your Christianity, there you are, there at church. You love to pray and use all these Christian phrases, but when it comes to your workplace, when it comes to your friends and family, when there comes a cost for being a believer, all of that gets shelved because you are only a peddler of God's word rather than a person of sincerity who simply speaks honestly about what's close to their heart. Now you see here then that God is not so much putting a burden on his church to force them to be what they are not, to force them to go and repeat to other people how wonderful God is if they themselves don't know the reality of that message. And certainly this morning, if you as a professing believer feel no joy in Christ, the last thing you should do is feel that you must go out there and pretend. Your number one reality or your number one goal is to get back to the very foundations of coming back to God and receiving his wonderful love and victory in Christ, making sure that you really draw near to the Lord Jesus. Believe in him again. Come near to him and know him in reality. You know, Psalm 34 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the apostle Peter in his letter, he quotes it in 1 Peter 2 and says, you know, earnestly desire the milk of the word. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All of that is telling us again, God is for tasting. God is not merely for observing from a distance. God is not merely for us to theorize and come up with wonderful sounding theological doctrines so that we might feel smart and pat ourselves on the back. God is certainly not for us to claim superiority to others in our lives and to be self-righteous. God is for tasting. The gospel that he gives to us is where he gives us himself so that we might live in the enjoyment of a right relationship with this wonderful and most loving God who gives us even his own son to make us right with him. Have you tasted of the goodness of God? Do you taste him continuously? Is that the cry of your heart? It must be. If you know at all how wonderful it is to walk with God, you know that that has to be your greatest pursuit. And the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek you first the kingdom of God, all else shall be added to you. There's our priority. If we would you have God use us to spread the knowledge of him to others. We know that others in our lives need to know him. Well, we might say that, but have we been convinced of that in our own hearts? Are we walking in that real enjoyment of fellowship with God ourselves in Jesus Christ? Those are serious questions, and I pray God would help you to think on these things. Now let's pray together and ask for his help. Lord, we marvel at your graciousness that you are willing to give yourself to this world, this unworthy world who so stubbornly turns away from you. Certainly, Lord, we know in a marriage, in a human terms, the greatest gift that the two people are giving to one another is the giving of themselves to each other, not their property or other things that they bring, but themselves. And Lord, we marvel that your love is so great that you give to us your very self, that we might in Christ Jesus, your son, our savior, be in a right relationship with you, day by day walking with you. 
Lord, we're praying for every one of us here who do not have that as a reality now. Please be merciful to us and draw our hearts to you. Help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and through faith in him, approach you and to be in a right standing with you. Knowing that if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you have promised to do away with all that holds us back from you. All of our sin and guilt, you do away with so that we might enjoy you and be in that wonderful fellowship with you. Give to us that blessing. And Lord, help your people from that place to simply be people of sincerity, people of honesty, and to simply speak to others of what they themselves know, that to know Jesus Christ is the most wonderful gift. Help us as a church to do that every single day. We're praying to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.